You're listening to Agency Highway. This is a podcast for agencies that want to grow their business and work less. Agency Highway is sponsored by Content Snare, a platform that helps digital agencies gather content from clients without digging through a storm of emails, huge attachments, and messy Google Docs. Sign up at contentsnare.com and use the chat widget to say you heard about Content Snare on Agency Highway, and you'll get a 30-day trial instead of the typical 14. Now, here's this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to Agency Highway. This is episode 108 with Jonathan Stark. Jonathan, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Jimmy. I uh, this is I love this topic, and I just realize I sound like a complete broken record because I say that almost <laughs> every week. But uh, value-based pricing and like a, like non-hourly billing has to be one of the most popular topics that we have every time someone comes on this show and talks about it. Um, because I think. It's just a struggle for a lot of people and me. I'm not going to lie. I have several selfish questions lined up uh, for <laughs> this uh, this show today. Uh, but Jonathan, can you start maybe with a little bit of a background on yourself and how you got into this world of like anti-hourly billing? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, in the mid-2000s, I guess 2005, I was the VP of a boutique software firm. So, you know, it was like I, I reported to the owner and I managed usually around 10 devs. Some would come and go, but it was about 10 developers normally. And we did uh, FileMaker projects. We built ourselves out by the hour. It was $150 an hour, if I remember correctly. And, uh, you know, my whole life as the as sort of that, you know, manager was hours, hours, hours. I would do the proposals for new clients. I'd try and estimate how many hours a project would take and I'd, you know, send that out in a proposal and I would be constantly whipping the developers, get your hours in, we need to send out invoices and then people would get the invoices and they say, oh, this is overestimate. How come it took so long to do the database import this week? Last week, it only took one hour. This week, it was two hours. So could we get on a phone call to talk about that extra hour? And it was just hours all the time. And the real turning point for me was when I realized that our best developer, was, who was really fast, really good, one of the, probably one of the best developers I've ever worked with to date, we're probably losing money on his salary because we had to pay him a lot of money uh, because he could command a, a high salary. But he would burn through projects so fast that it was like we had a hard time keeping him busy. You just finished, you do things right the first time real quickly. And we had an intern type of person, a junior developer, who was really slow, had to do things three and four times to get it right, wouldn't do it the best way the first time, so would have to do a lot of rework. We were billing him out at $150 an hour, and he kept his clients perfectly happy because he had an amazing bedside manner. He's a really charming guy. And I was kind of like, it, 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 you know, so we're making tons of money off of this person who was barely a beginner developer, and... I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that with, you know, here's this guy who we're lucky to have. And here's this other guy who is lucky to have a job. And the guy who's lucky to have a job is like our most profitable developer. It, it just <laughs> couldn't, it didn't make sense. So I kind of wrestled with that for a while. And I stumbled across something called value-based pricing, which as soon as you see it, as soon as you understand what it is, instantly my expensive developer becomes my most valuable developer and my sort of intern person becomes what you'd expect, which is a liability, you know, sort of like, right. So it should be like that. You should have to groom these, 
these younger devs and turn them into these great devs. And you would expect that if you spent the time to do that, that you'd get some financial benefit from that investment. And if you're milling by the hour, it really doesn't happen. You, the better you are, the worse you get paid. So it punishes expertise if you're billing for your time. And if you flip it around and you bill on a value price basis or some other, you could calculate fixed prices in some other way, but value pricing, I think, is the best approach for certain things. Um, it All of a sudden, everything falls into place and the financial motivations are in sync and everybody is is getting compensated in a more equitable fashion. So just all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, the world's upside down and I Am I the only person that sees this? And it seems like it seems like I was certainly in the minority of people. So now I'm on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. You know, I go on and try and teach people how to ditch hourly, like how to make more money without working more hours. It seems impossible, but it's actually possible. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's why the topic is so damn popular, right? Like <laughs> people yeah. realize that they can make more money working less. I mean, who does not want that? I mean, that's the yeah, reason it's most a of us. Yeah, but it's it's also the reason so many people got into business, right? So you don't have to like get up with an alarm clock and like work X hours a day and come home when you're told to, and uh, and then you know you know how much you're getting and, and that's it. And mm-hmm. people come into business and they start hourly billing and pretty quickly realize they've just made themselves a job again. Yeah, with no benefits. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and half the time they're probably struggling to make what they were making before. So. Does that mean you weren't able to turn anything around in that company because you were like a VP or did you do it on your own? So I went to the boss. I was very good friends with him. I still am to this day, 10 years, 15 years later. And I explained the sort of epiphany that I had. And I was like, look, if you, you know, I could point to particular symptoms that the business had, you know, it was like not getting invoices out on time things like that. It was a bunch of things. And I was like, look at all of these systems that we're building to try and and fix these headaches that we have. But if we just change this one fundamental thing, all of that stuff evaporates. Like we don't need systems to manage that stuff because the whole model will change. So it's kind of like everything would come into focus. So we wouldn't need the glasses anymore. And he was, and to his credit, he was like, I see what you're saying. Like I rationally understand what you're saying, but how would we implement that? Like, what would be the steps we would take to switch over to that? And to be honest, I was like, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know yet. Like, I just know that that's like, I had a vision, but I didn't have a map. So, and it would, it felt really risky to me to kind of like gamble, you know, we had like payroll every month to make mm-hmm. and, and things were working reasonably well. It wasn't like we were having a major problems. It was just headaches and, and organizational stuff and like this weird upside down profitability on the devs. So I was like, you know, you're right. Um, but I couldn't really unsee the, 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 the nuts, the, how crazy it was that, that hourly billing was just nuts. And so there's a difference between realizing that and, and just even it's beyond believing it. It's just like knowing in your bones that this is the problem and knowing how to fix the problem. And it can be tricky to fix this problem for an agency because there's usually, you know, if you're not a soloist, you probably have all sorts of systems in place that are predicated on the assumption of a billable hour. So you've got timesheets and you've you've got invoicing that works like that. You've probably got time tracking software. You've probably got incentives for your your employees that are based on the number of hours they work. Mm -hmm. You probably have your one-on-one system. Everything about infests the entire business. It's just like, it's like a, 
you know, a disease that's infested the business and to, to take it out, you don't want to kill the host. Right. So I, I was a little too scared to, I, I would have probably screwed it up, honestly, if I had tried to do it there. Uh, so I, I went solo, I put my money where my mouth was. And the very first year it was like night and day improvement. Wow. It was just a dramatic improvement, mm. but it's not like that for everyone. It's because I was starting fresh from scratch with no employees. Yeah. So it made it feasible for me to do that. And I, I took coaching from people who, you know, knew how to do value-based pricing and I've been doing it for years. So it was, it was a, you know, an onboarding process. I wouldn't say I got lucky, but I know that a lot of people um, have a, a bigger hill to climb than I did because they're, they own an agency and they have 10 employees and they're not gonna, you know, start over from scratch. So they kind of have to fix the plane in flight. So it's much trickier uh, value, you know, proposition. Yeah. And I, I actually just thinking about what you were saying, like the risk, I guess, of jumping into value-based pricing, I was thinking like, I guess like you could always just do it with one project, right? And mm -hmm. test the waters. Yep. Is that, is that kind of how you recommend people do it or? There are a few things you can do. Um, yeah. One, they're not all value pricing, but for someone who has, is used to an hourly model, it's a life-changing experience to feel what working on a fixed price project is. Mm -hmm. It's it's all of a sudden you go from, you know, every hour that goes by, you go from thinking, ah, oh, I just made 150 bucks to I just lost 150 bucks. Uh -huh. So your your motivation to do good work faster spikes. Like yeah. you want to do the best quality work possible because every hour you work, you're losing money. So all of a sudden your financial incentive is aligned with the client. So you any kind of fixed pricing is going to give you that kind of an experience. The problem with traditional fixed pricing is the way when people dabble with it, they do time and materials. So they think, ah, they come up with an estimate of $10,000 and then they maybe tack on a percentage, you know, like a, you know, a couple thousand dollars or something. And they say, okay, it'll be, you know, whatever. Yeah. 13,000. And then they get killed because the price is way too low. There's no profit margin there. They didn't come anywhere near uh, close enough to uncovering the scope. So some ways that you can sort of safely test this uh, one way that I recommend to people is they don't change anything. They do everything their normal way. They have a normal sales conversation, however they normally would. And they create an estimate. And it's probably, we think, just to use round numbers, we think it's going to be $10,000, but we're not sure. It could take twice as long. We just think it'll take about $10,000. A lot of times there are surprises. A lot of times there are changes mid-flight that could increase that number quite a bit. But we think it'll be $10,000. Or we'll stand behind... 18,500 as a quote, so an 85% premium on top of the estimate and say, and we will guarantee certain things. So you'd say, you know, whatever you've discussed, there's certain things you would guarantee, no matter how long it takes, this is how much it's going to cost. No change orders, none of those shenanigans. This is the price. And so the, the funny thing about this exercise is when someone tries it for the first time, before they even submit the proposal to the client, they just sit down and they're writing the proposal and they estimate, ah, I think it'll be $10,000. And then they do what I'm suggesting and they say 18,500 and they're like, "Oh, no way. I'll get killed if I price it at 18,500." What does that tell you? It tells you that the estimate is way too low because yeah. you're practically doubling it and you're still sure you're going to lose money. Well, let's be honest with ourselves here and and admit that you're lowballing the estimate. 
So yeah. if you constantly are going over estimates, you're probably lowballing them and you don't really get penalized for that other than, you know, a few angry months of emails from your client. <laughs> so if you are actually standing behind your price and if you're, if you want to be perceived as a professional and you feel like you're an expert and you're actually really good at what it is that you do and you think you can finish it faster than $10,000 worth of hours, you dramatic, you stand to benefit dramatically by giving a fixed price. So anyway, the, your question was, how does someone start to transition in a relatively safe way? That's the first thing I would recommend. Just do a normal estimate and then, and then tack on a price that's 85% higher than what your estimate was and stand behind that. And if you have to adjust the estimate to pick a fixed price that you can stand behind, then do it. Uh, I would advise doing this on a fairly small project though. Like don't, don't try and do this on a half a million dollar project you know, do this on a small project, potentially with a, a client who you feel you got good communication with, you click with them. There's not a lot of um, communication latency. There's not mm. a lot of confusion in your communications. You want to, you want to really do this with someone who you basically trust and they basically trust you. You feel like a good connection and you just offer this new, this sort of alternative model where, where you give them a fixed price that's based on your estimate. So that's still time and materials, basically. It's not really, value, it's definitely not value pricing, but it gives you a way to start to safely experience the difference in motivation between working on a project by the hour and working on a fixed price one. And people who are good at what they do, they like the fixed price one better because it gives them a reason to invest in their tools, build code libraries, um, buy a faster computer. Like all of that stuff starts to make sense because saving time actually makes you money where if you save time on an hourly basis, it loses you money. Yeah. And I mean that you just, that last sentence was speaking right to me there. It was, it was <laughs> like, cause I'm always one that's talking about like getting faster computers and like spending more money on software because it's going to save you time. Cause like, I guess I see so many people trying to get like the cheapest tool that does everything uh, in their business that does everything kind of like a half-assed job, uh, <laughs> you know, and it ends up costing them more in the long run or like actually wrote a, a, a post that resonated pretty well recently about um, switching to cheaper tools. Like people will spend, like three days or whatever of time switching from to something that saves them 50 bucks a month. And it's like, that's going to take you three years to pay back just right. that switch. <laughs> it's yeah. The joke I always think. tell is like, why would you ever buy a faster computer if you build by the hour? Like you should always have the slowest computer you can that works. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I can totally see all the things you've been saying about like that, uh, the intern that was the most profitable versus like yeah. a fast developer. Like, right. Yeah, because I've worked in an engineering shop before my my um, online business, and exactly the same sort of thing. You know, like you see people that are just that take literally four times the amount of time, and then probably eat up some of the seniors' time as well, trying to learn stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they're still the most profitable. There is yeah. one thing you mentioned um, about it, like having the fixed price incentivizes like quality work or. Like, how do you balance, I guess, because you're going to be more preoccupied, not preoccupied, but you're incentivized to get things done faster with a fixed price, right? right? So how do you balance speed versus quality then? Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, how do you not cut corners? Because the, the yeah. and, and not even send the perception that you might cut, cut corners. Yeah. And that's actually kind of where I was going to go with this. Like, more like yeah. I'd be worried about the client's perception that, oh, if you're yeah. charging me that, you're just 
do whatever, you know? Yeah, you'll just slap a bunch of yeah. coat of paint on a whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of a couple of answers to that question. To be honest, it, it was, never was a real problem for me, but that's because I did the marketing positioning work that I did to be a trusted expert in my area. So it was just assumed that the stuff I did was going to be as good as any in the world because I had written some books and they were popular. And so I didn't really have to deal with that, but it does come up. And so how do you address that? One is just that you do that marketing work, be a recognized go-to expert for the thing that you do. And people are just going to assume it's quality. Um, You know, having uh, credibility indicators on your website, like, you know, whatever you worked with Google X and you worked to design, you did design for Apple and you did operations for Amazon, you know, like having credibility indicators. Mm -hmm. It's also going to deal with that. But what if you're just starting out? What if you're not there yet? What do you do then? Well, you guarantee your work. So you say, hey, you know, a guarantee. So like if it was a software project, a typical guarantee for me would be, you know, 12 bug free guarantee. So for 12 months after launch, if any bug crops up, I'll fix it for free. And as soon as you say that, it's going to give you the it's going to make it clear to the the uh, client that it's in your best interest and it is in your best interest to comment your code and write it the right way. And, you know, all of those refactoring things that you might not do if you're just trying to blast through and, and just get something done that did the minimum Hmm. uh, requirements, then all of a sudden you're on the hook for 12 more months of free bug fixes. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to charge, a lot of money for a project more than you ever would have with time material time and materials you say maybe maybe a project normally would be a hundred thousand dollars you think on an hourly basis but instead you say it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars that's a fixed price if it takes me twice as long you won't pay a dime more and they'll say well how do we know you're not going to cut corners you say well i'll guarantee i'll give you a a 12-month bug-free guarantee if any bug crops up in the 12 months after launch i'll fix it for free and that addresses all of the issues now yeah. it's on you. Now it's on you to not only be quick and get done quickly. You've got a financial incentive to do that, but you also have a financial incentive to do it well. And those two things in combination, that puts you on the same side of the table as the client because now you want all the same things they want and they'll be very willing to pay a premium for someone like you who's willing to offer that kind of a guarantee, two kinds of guarantees. One, this price, I will not exceed this price. And two, if it turns out that I screwed up, I'll fix it. So, I mean, that's like a dream come true for a lot of buyers. In fact, Mm -hmm. some people might not even believe it. They're like, that's too good. I can't believe it. Mm -hmm. But in general, it's basically what you're talking about is a trust building exercise. And so I just listed like three ways to, Mm. to create trust in your potential buyer, you know, reputation, um, third party validation and guarantees. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, when you were talking about that, I guess, um, authority or trust indicators, I was thinking exactly that, you know, like there's companies I know that they just have authority and brands and you look at their website and it looks quality and there's like an inherent quality in, like a, sorry, a, a trust in that where you just go, like I, you know, probably going to pay what that person's asking because everything they do just looks awesome. You know, they've got some projects listed there that are, um, you know, big names or whatever, and you can go and have a look at that project and see that it's done well. Um, one objection I did kind of think that people might have um, is that, oh, no way could I guarantee for a year, right? Because there's no way I can, I can afford that. It'd kill me. I guess the answer there is just like, you're charging a lot more. So, <laughs> Yeah. 
tack a zero on? Does this yeah. not seem like a much enough? So yeah, it raises another question, which is like, how do I find these clients that can afford to pay me way more than they were maybe planning on paying someone by the hour, but do value the kind of certainty that you get with someone like that. So in other words, that was, that was pretty vague. So business buyers hate risk. Mm-hmm. especially if it's not their money and they're going to have to report to their boss and like, Oh, the project's over budget. I need to go back to the well for more money. Like that would never have happened with my clients. It literally never happened that I went over budget on a client. I never went back for more money in 10 or 15 years ever. Not That's once. Awesome. And I'm not saying there weren't scope keep creep problems and things that could have gone better. It happened from time to time. But if you price yourself in a way that minimizes the risk to the client, they'll feel it. And that will separate you from any almost anybody that uh, you're competing against. So if they're considering other alternatives, almost nobody is going to stand behind their work or stand behind their price. It's just not done. I mean, maybe if, if my mission comes true, everyone will. But right now, it's not that common. So when you, when you find a buyer, when you come in contact with a buyer who really has been burned before, and there's plenty of them that have been burned before. Mm. And you're like, no, that, that'll never happen with me. And you can talk to a long list of clients that will swear up and down that that's true. And here it is, fixed price, guarantee, and the price that you set, you just factor in 12 months of bug fixes. Yeah. So you just, you just kind of like, it's kind of like you do it up front and present them with the price up front instead of nickel and diming them later with change requests and, and, <laughs> and charging them for bug fixes. So you just move all of that ajda all of that stress all of those arguments you just throw them out the window and you say it's going to be this much and that when you say this much it's going to be a lot more than you would have charged by the hour or even even maybe that the hourly estimate plus the 85 percent so if you've got people that have big projects that are bet the business projects that they really need to have go right and you are the go-to person that is going to de-risk that and, and maximize the chances of success of that project. And you're going to give them a fixed, I probably already said that <laughs> all of these things are just like, they present you as a professional who knows what they're doing, does good work and is going to just hit home runs for people. And yes, they're, you know, it's hard doing these big software projects. It's a lot of work, things change, all that stuff's true. But if you're overly concerned about scope creep and, almost creating a waterfall document before you even start building that it's going to have these features and those features. And I'm sorry, you didn't ask for that login feature. So I guess you don't get one unless you, you know, you forgot to tell me about that or you forgot to tell me about the audit trail or that it needs to be localized in 10 languages. Sorry. (laughs) It looks like it's going to be more. You get around all of that stuff because you don't have these razor thin margins that agencies are used to dealing with. All of a sudden you have profit, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. significant profit. So when the inevitable surprise comes up, you you don't care. Like you're like, yeah, I know there's going to be surprises. There always are. And so, you know, you just need to be you need to be somewhat experienced to know what the big landmines are mm. and, you know, have some kind of sense of that. But if you've been in business for a few years, you probably have experienced tons of that stuff. So you watch out for the big things and you talk about those up front and you just price yourself in a way that having adding a 12 month bug free guarantee doesn't really make you nervous because you know, you write good code and you know, you're just not nervous about it. Yeah. That's awesome. I actually, you answered my next question about like scope creep. Cause I was thinking, you know, like there's been so many clients we've had in the past where something massive gets tacked on. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I can see sometimes that, there's no way we could have done it. But at the same time, 
now that I really think about it, all the clients knew that it was going to be additional. Like it was, so I guess if something is a really big change that happens in the middle, yeah, most people are going to be reasonable and realize that that's not part of the scope. If it's like a, like a login thing, I mean, any developer can add a login pretty quickly. And if you've got room for that in like in the uh, price that you've given, then that's great. Um, but something like, I don't know about localization in 10 languages. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever had enough room in a project for that. Right. Well, here's a classic one that happened to us more than once. Cause I, when I was at that firm, it was a FileMaker, which is a sort of a desktop mm-hmm. database solution. Uh, that was popular at the time. And one of the things would, would be, I don't know if this ever happened to us, but I heard about it happening to people where, you know, they'd scope out the spec out the system and get a scope of work and features and this many tables and layouts and portals and scripts and all of this business logic. And you're okay, great. Um, you are building a new system from scratch to replace the old system. They do the whole thing and boom, here you go. Nine months later, here's your beautiful new database. And they're like, great. Um, where's the data? And you're like, well, we never talked about migrating the data from the old system to the new one. And like the data models don't even match. So they're like, well, you, you know, we just paid you $150,000 for this and we can't use it until the data's in it. So that's just a rookie mistake. Like not talking about who's going to import the data or if you're going to run the systems in parallel, or if there's going to be some, whatever you're going to do, that's just a rookie mistake. But that can be, that can be a bigger project than creating the new software, just getting the data into the new system and then validating that it came over correctly while the business is still in progress. That's a massive challenge, but you know, hopefully that's not going to happen to you. But to your point about, uh, hopefully you're smart enough to know, to talk about that up front. Fact, well, that's like a whole skill, right? That's what I was just thinking. It's like you knowing how to get the information out of people. Requirements mm-hmm. gathering, I think, is the the technical term. Like getting the information out at the start during those conversations to work out what they actually want. Right. So now here, here's an important nuance, though, that we haven't talked about yet, is that I would do that scoping after they paid, after okay. they already agreed. So in the sales interview, so somebody comes along and says, hey, we heard you do great work. We need to talk to you about this big project we're doing. Can we jump on the phone? Say, sure. Jump on the phone. They brain dump all of the things they want me to do. Build this, build that. It's going to look like this. And over here, and we've got this prototype and blah, 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 blah. So I'm taking notes and everything. It's interesting information, but it's not what I'm on the call for. I don't care about scope. I'm going to scope last. The first thing I need to do is figure out why they're doing this problem. So I go through the why conversation where I ask three kinds of why questions to them. After they brain dump everything, I'll say, that's great. Got a bunch of notes here. Can I back up for a second with you guys and talk about the goals? Like, why are you doing this? Because there's like a hundred ways I could skin the cat here. And some of them will actually paint you into a corner if I don't know where we're trying to go. So I want to make sure I understand the difference between is this going to be a prototype that you throw away when an enterprise system from Oracle gets installed in three years, or is this the basis for the next 10 years of your business and it needs to scale up 10x the current business that you're currently doing? Like, do we have to prepare for scale? Do we have to prepare to throw it out? Do I need to set the data up in a way that will be easy to import later? All of these, you know, what's the bigger context? And a good client will love this. A bad client will be like, what do you need to know that for? Just do what I said. You don't want to work. You don't want to work with those people. Yeah. A good client's going to sit back and be like, oh, wow. Glad you asked. That's a great question. They sort of lean back and they think about it. And you get to in that, in that conversation, the goal is for them to answer 
these three categories of why question to your satisfaction so you are confident that you actually can improve their condition. So they'll end up describing some transformation that they want to make. They're in a current situation. They'll describe a desired future state and they'll explain why they think you can contribute to that transformation. They'll, they'll say what your contribution to that, like where you fit in the picture. Mm-hmm. So once you have that information, you've got the goalposts, you know what your contribution looks like. You know, you know, and you'd say, well, how, how will we know when we're done? What does a home run look like? What can we measure along the way to make sure that we're on track toward our, our ultimate goal? And they'll have answers for all of these things because they know something's wrong. And the reason they yeah. know something's wrong is because they're measuring something. So it might be drop-off rate on their website. It might be card abandonment. It might be page speed that's leading to, who knows? It could be they're not getting invoices out fast enough, so they need new internal systems. And so you you figure out, okay, the goal here is to get uh, 10x the invoice volume throughput, you know, invoice throughput through the system. Or it's to cut page speed or page load time in half. Or it's, you know, decrease the bounce rate on mobile by 20%. And like, well, why 20%? Why not 70%? You know, you have all these questions, you act like a business owner and you ask them business questions and you're going to find they've got business objectives. So once I start to get business objectives, usually there's going to be some sort of dollars in there somewhere. Some, not that I can directly affect necessarily, but there's going to be some kind of financial benefit to them once this system is live. Otherwise they wouldn't waste their time talking to you. If it was just, (laughs) you're not going to talk to some mobile consultants for fun, they are planning, they're considering making an investment in someone that is going to have some kind of ROI for them downstream. Mm -hmm. So I want to know what that is. So I don't screw it up. Like I want to make sure I can satisfy them. So once I'm confident that I can satisfy them in the proposal, I'm going to say the goal, you know, have three options. And then this option is, you know, uh, option one is going to be whatever, a hundred thousand dollars. And it's going to include blah, 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 whatever it is. And I'll talk about the benefits of that option to them. Not, I'll, I'll mention the deliverables, but the benefits. And the big picture here is if we have a agreement about what the goal of the project is, when these weird changes that will sometimes happen in the middle of, a, of a, a project, like the sales team comes running in, they're like, we need a carousel on the homepage. <laughs> and I'll be like, what are you talking about? That has nothing to do with decreasing the, the card abandonment rate on mobile phones. Like, yeah, but our competitors just put a carousel on their homepage and it looks really cool. And since you're in there anyway, couldn't you just add a carousel to the homepage? And my approach there wouldn't be to say like, oh, well, statistically speaking and best practices and carousels don't really work. And, you know, you've got a, what you have there is a content problem. I wouldn't get into any of that. What I would say is, well, I'd say, okay, we could do that. But how does that contribute to the stated goal of the project? And the stated goal of the project is that we decrease the card abandonment rate on mobile. How does the carousel contribute to that? Mm-hmm. Boom. Right. And if they can answer that question, I'll want to do it. If they can't answer that question, then I'll say, well, it's an interesting idea. I don't want to jeopardize the success of the project we're working on and management wants it done yesterday. So why don't we take that and I'll keep a list of good ideas like that, that we can revisit after we declare victory on this project. That's a different project. So if somebody came along and they said, you know, the localization thing, if that's, if the stated goal is to, I don't know, if the stated goal is to like a hundred X the revenue, then I'd be like, well, you know, if we did 
localize this in a bunch of languages or be able to release it in other countries. And that might actually get us to our goal faster. So maybe we could actually cut some features, just localize the interface and release mm -hmm. it much sooner. So as long as you know what the goal is of the project, you can always sort of um, kind of save the client from themselves when they start to ask for stuff that's going to jeopardize the product project. If I was billing by the hour, I'd be like, sure, that'll be another 100 hours or yeah. I'll send you a change order and you can approve that or not. So it, all of a sudden it's like you just be a fierce defender of the project. You protect it from the client is really the, usually the problem. <laughs> yeah. And you tell them, and I set this expectation way up front. I, I push back in the sales meeting. They'll say, oh, we're doing it because of this. And I'll be like, well, why? What does that matter? So they know from the beginning, working with me, I'm going to challenge every assumption. I'm going to push back. And I'll literally say to them, once we get started on this project, I am going to be, of anybody in this room, no one's going to be more concerned with the success than me. And if you ask me to do something that's going to jeopardize that success, I'm going to say no. And they'll be like, and good clients are going to respect that. They're going to be like, yes, this is the guy we want. That's exactly what we want. We know our, we are our own worst enemy. <laughs> I've heard that a bunch of times. I know enough nice. to be dangerous. Stuff like that. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the long answer to the scope question, which is have a success metric for the project and anything that doesn't, can't, anything that someone requests where they can't make a, a case why it's going to help with the success, it doesn't get done. I'm sorry. That's a separate project. We can do that later. Uh, that's uh, you said it's a long answer, but it's perfect. That was a really bloody good answer. Uh, thank you for the detail. There's like uh, pretty much every question I had uh, in there was answered by you. Like preempted, you've done this before. <laughs> Answer twice. I do have a question though. Look, what does your proposal slash contract look like for these kind of mm -hmm. things? And then do you get pushback? Uh, yeah, sometimes. I mean, if I do a good job, because I, you know, I don't like writing proposals. That's not a fun thing to do. Mm. Um, but I have it down to a science where I can do them really quickly if I do a good job in the sales interview with the why conversation. So in the why conversation, I'm trying to find out, uh, basically, I raise every possible objection. So the, the three categories of question are why this? So why is this the project that's going to achieve the goal? Why not some other project? The next one is why now? Like, why not do this next year? Why take this risk now? Why make this investment now? Put it off. You don't need to do this now. And the last one is why me? Why would you hire someone expensive like me to do this for you when you could get an intern or you could go on TopTal or Fiverr or hire some people or whatever? Why have me do it? You know I'm going to be the most expensive option. And if you raise all those objections first, it practically writes the proposal for you. Yeah. So when you sit down to write the proposal, and I have a template that I use, it's available on my website. It's short. It's like five pages. I've written million dollar proposals with five pages. And it's not about scope. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about what are the benefits of each option. So it'll start off with a cover page. It's just thanks, thanks them for their time and the usual stuff like that. And then I'll do a uh, sort of a situation appraisal section, or you could call it a project overview. And it, de it defines three things that already came up on this conversation. The first thing is their current state. What is the current situation? What something's broken, you know, something's broken. That's why you called me. What is it? What's broken? The second thing is the desired future state. So what is the way that they wish things were? Where are we going? You know, what is the transformation that they want? And third is your contribution. What do they believe is your contribution to that transformation? So you're talking about like two or three sentences in each one of those sections. So it's like a half a page or three quarters of a page of like, here's where you are. Here's where you want to go. Here's how I can help. 
And this is all just, I'm just echoing back to them what they told me. I'm not mm-hmm. selling them anything. I'm just saying what they said to me. So we're all on the same page. And then I'd say following our three options, uh, they're all incremental. Uh, so if you buy two, you get one. If you buy three, it includes two and one. And I'll just go through each one and say in option one, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And the benefit of that to you will be, and then I'll list like anywhere from three to six business benefits, like increased morale, decreased bounce rate, uh, decreased card abandonment, um, quicker time to market, like some benefits like that they care about, uh, you know, that their, that their CFO would care about, like, like stuff that normal business people get. I'm not going to say things like, oh, I don't know, um, we'll minimize the number of media queries in your CSS. Like that's, that's a deliverable. It doesn't matter to anybody. They want a result. So I would list what the benefits of option one are. And then option two, same thing. Option three, same thing. And then there, you know, if this is the first time I've worked with them, I might have a, uh, well, I would have a risks and assumptions section next, where if there's any scary things that are triggering my spider sense that we couldn't resolve before, I'll, I'll list them out. Uh, so that if any of these things do blow up in our face later, you're not going to look like you got caught with your pants down. You're going to say like, well, we knew this could happen. It's regrettable, but I have a contingency plan because we knew it was a risk. So you still have that, you have that, you maintain the sense of trust that they have. So it's not like this thing blew up and everyone's looking at you and you've got like smoke all over your face, right? Because then that makes them doubt how good you actually are. So risks and assumptions is important. And then uh, if it's the first time I've worked with the client, I'll do a why me section because, and I'll say like, that's the spot where you trumpet how awesome you are because the person who you give this proposal to, they might show it to their CFO or somebody who doesn't know you and doesn't know anything about the project. And they're just trying to, they want a gut check. Like, does this seem too expensive? What's going on here? I I always write a proposal assuming that someone I didn't talk to and doesn't know me is going to read it. Any stranger with a college education should be able to read a proposal and be like, Hmm, seems like a good deal because nice. everything's in it. Desire for the transformations in it. The prices are in it. All of the benefits are in it. And anybody could just be like, yeah, this seems reasonable. Nice. Uh, so then after that, the why me section and then terms and conditions. So it'd be like, you know, uh, this is, a, I'd reiterate, this is a quote, not an estimate. You won't pay a dime more than this, no matter how long it takes me. Uh, uh, the, you know, money is due hundred percent upfront in order to book the time in my calendar, choose one of the three and the prices are, and here I would put the prices. I don't put the prices earlier. Oh, I put the prices. Yeah. I put the prices way at the end. So they kind of have to hunt for them. <laughs> in fact, I didn't, I didn't mention this, but in the situation appraisal at the top, there'll be a dollar sign in there. I'll have some kind of back of the napkin calculation of, you know, like how much they would stand to benefit if they achieve the desired outcome. So if the transformation does ultimately come to pass, it's going to mean a million dollars annually of incremental revenue for the business. And so when they first crack the thing open and they're scanning for dollar signs, because that's the thing they want to see. (laughs) Yep. They're going to see $20 million or something. They're like, what? And then like, oh, that's the benefit to us. And like his calculation's a little bit off, but it's in the ballpark. Mm. So they're immediately anchored to the value of the project. So then when they finally find the dollar signs at the end, it's going to look like a no brainer for option one. But you know, if you do your job, right, if you, if you do a good job calculating the value and it's relatively mm-hmm. accurate. So you set this price like $10,000 for this kind of benefit, like, come on, definitely a no brainer. If we're going to spend that, we might as well spend what's number two. So you just like use a pricing curve that is going to drive them either to option two or option three. And you know, sort of off to the races. If you're going to include a guarantee, you would include it there as well. Uh, but that's it. That's, you know, it's usually works out to about five pages. 
That's awesome. You said you mentioned there was a template. Where can people go to get that? Yeah, yeah. If you go to jonathanstark.com slash five, the number five, it'll redirect you to the, <laughs> That's, uh, easy. the email yeah. download. Yeah, awesome. Um, well, far out. Uh, there has been so much awesome stuff in here. I do, like, I, I think you've almost answered my selfish questions as well because I've been sitting here <laughs> like... The, what I was going to ask is I've been doing some automation consulting lately just for fun, right? Like we have a SaaS product. Um, that's our main, I guess, revenue and like uh, uh, some software dev stuff. But just for fun, I kind of show people how to use Zapier and whatever. And uh, cool. often yeah. people will come through to me and go, oh, can you like help me with this specific thing? Yeah. And pricing that has been so damn difficult um, because like a lot of the time it'll be with something I've never even used. Like people will be like, I need to integrate this like auditing tool that I've like heard of about once, you know, and Salesforce. I'm like, I've never even seen what Salesforce looks like. (laughs) And it's different every time because everyone's using different apps, different tools. And I'm just like, ah, hourly, like I'll work it out. And I always do. But I also feel like that thing at the start with the intern versus the experienced developer where like I actually was tracking time the other day and I was like literally spending like three and a half minutes on some of the tasks you know, and it's just like that one thing is probably going to save them quite a lot of money. And I'm about to invoice them like four minutes of my time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. yeah, So I can see now just being like, you know, putting actual just numbers on what I think it's going to be and then eating the cost because it's my own experience, I guess that. Yeah, you could. I mean, if you, if you do feel like you're just new to it, I mean, that's an interesting challenge because you're right. You kind of have to understand the apps on both sides of the zap. So it's like, earth, that's kind of a, a potential, I mean, the, the way you would, I would want to do it in a situation like that is, is, uh, someone comes along and they say, Hey, we need you to integrate Salesforce and Magento or something. And you're like, all right, why? And you have this why conversation mm-hmm. with them. Maybe you don't use Zapier. Maybe that's not really a great fit. Yeah. Um, but you, you probably are automatically attracting, people who want to kind of roll their own DIY no code solution are probably already going to be fairly discount buyers or price sensitive buyers. They're already trying to get around the idea of hiring even a cheap developer. So, and you know, and they certainly are trying to get around hiring a like a partner that works on any one of these platforms or a real software integrator. So they're probably already looking for a relatively low price solution. So that could be a little bit it problematic. Is, there's a mix. So for sure. But like, I've had clients that are just straight up, like they told me to invoice them for double what I'd quoted, quoted them. <laughs> like straight up said that, like, you know, that's an app once, but like, you know, I do have clients that are not like that i think people just know oh there's like this tool that you can connect things with right mm-hmm. um because like in reality like building a connection with a lot of these things is going to be pretty damn expensive so they've saved a lot by using someone like me but yeah it's just interesting because sometimes you know i think i think about your guarantee right like no matter how long it takes me there are some of these things where i'm just like oh like we dig into it it's like oh you can't even do that it's well like, at that point you could just give their money back yeah, so that's you, true. you could say, yeah, right. Cause you find that out pretty quickly. It wouldn't yeah. be six months later. Yeah. You know, you'd be like three days in, you'd be like, you know what? I, you're, you're at that point, you're eating the cost of learning the platform better. Yeah. And if you keep, you know, it's not going to happen every time, but if you, if you go in there and you haven't wasted a lot of the client's time or whatever, you could just say like, Hey, you know what? I don't know if this is feasible. I'm willing to give it a shot for five grand. And if it works, it works. If I get into it and it turns out 
there's no way to do the exact thing that you want, I'll just give you your money back. Yeah. And the first thing you would do is make sure it's feasible. And I would not do that before the proposal because then you just waste a lot of time potentially with tire kickers. And now you're investigating Magento for no reason. (laughs) So I would say, you know, it's five grand or whatever. And I'm reasonably confident that I can plug these things together, but just be transparent. Be like, I could be wrong. The API for Magento might not, it it should be good, but I don't know. So let's just start. If it turns out it's wrong, I'll just refund the money. Or we could talk about maybe some other approach, maybe a little bit of custom code, some kind of an adapter. Maybe they don't, maybe it doesn't have to be Magento. It could be Shopify or something else. So you could leave that discussion open if it turns out that it's not feasible the way that they wanted it. Yeah. And if it turns out it's going to blow up in your face, you know, and I haven't had to do this. I think I've done it like two or three times. It very like kickoff, kickoff of the project. Some new player, like the CEO shows up for the meeting and it (laughs) turns out that there's just completely mismatched expectations between my buyer and what actually the goal was or right. or the ceo is like got a personality that is not a map a match with mine and i just feel like here's your money back there's no <laughs> it's not gonna happen yeah wow that's fair enough and i think that's a really good i don't know if skills the word but like trait personality trait to be able to do that you know like i said a lot of people that probably see those red flags early on in the project and they just go right. oh we're this far in we can't we can't just give the money back but you know i've been on that borderline a few times like i've i've offered people their money back and then they've offered to pay more or something to get it sorted um you know i think yeah there's all the, the sense of relief that comes when unbelievable <laughs> It's like yeah. the best $10,000 you'll ever spend. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah. It's the best I, feeling ever. Every time I've had someone, like a student, like in my coaching program or something, they'll tell me this like intractable solution. I'm like, well, why don't you just give them their money back? You've only been working on it for three days. And they're like, can I do that? Like, <laughs> yeah. And then they do it. And sometimes it's like, they're like, mm, I kind of had that money earmarked for something. But when, then when they do it, they come back and they all say the same thing. Like, that was the best decision I ever made. Like the relief Mm-hmm. that's just emanating off them after they do that is like fabulous. And plus it gives you a sense of control over your destiny. Like you're, you're not, you know, beholden to these people. It's a business transaction and you want to, you want to satisfy your customers. If it becomes clear that you're not going to be able to, it's like, it's yeah. not going to get better six months later. Ah, yep. So Jonathan, speaking of students, um, where can people go to, I guess, learn more about becoming a student or, like working with yeah. you. Right. So I write a uh, daily email for uh, independent professionals about pricing. And the best place to go is to sign up for that. Uh, it starts off with a totally free six day email course about value pricing. So it goes into more detail about some of these things that we talked about. And it's from my personal email. So if you reply to any messages, it goes straight to my inbox and we can start a conversation there. If you, uh, you know, dear listener, if you have more questions about one of the emails, then you know, I reply to everything. So you can just awesome. shoot me an email and continue the conversation there. Yeah. And that's it. Uh, is that the one at value pricing bootcamp? Yes. Valuepricingbootcamp.com. That'll redirect to my main site, but it's easier to remember value pricing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I love that you've done that. Yeah. It's awesome. Value pricing bootcamp.com, which will be linked up in the show notes along with um, that proposal template and any other resources that we've spoken about. Bloody hell, Jonathan, this has been um, a huge episode. Um, I think, yeah, super valuable for our listeners. So I just want to say thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom. 
Thanks for having me. Happy to anybody who's spreading the message. That's, <laughs> that's my mission. <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. I hope you got some value out of that episode. That was amazing for me. Um, so I hope it was amazing for you too. Uh, if you'd like to uh, get any of those show notes and links, that's at agencyhighway.com slash 108. And I'll see you in the next episode. Discover how to grow your agency, earn more and work less at agencyhighway.com. Head over there to get resources from this episode and full transcripts. See you next time. This episode was brought to you by Content Snare. If you're a digital agency or just need to get content or info from your clients, Content Snare can help you collect it on time and without enormous email trails. Give it a try at contentsnare.com.